think that's why professionally I do both. So I am in that sweaty, dark studio with the music blaring, and then at the other part of my day, I'm looking at what exactly scientifically is going on in your body during those times. So it's a really nice balance. Welcome to episode 135 of the Running on Ohm podcast. This is your host, Julia Hanlon, and I'm excited to have Rachel Pajednik, research fellow at the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine, holds a PhD in biochemical and molecular nutrition and exercise physiology, spin instructor at Flywheel Sports, and creator of Strong Process on the podcast. You don't need to be a runner or a yogi to listen to this podcast and be a part of the Running on Ohm tribe, but instead people who run on Ohm are individuals who live with a connection to mind, body, and spirit in all that they do. This podcast features wellness pioneers who run on Ohm every day, and I believe that the stories of these people that I bring on for all of you every week can change your life. Today's conversation with Rachel covers a lot of ground on nutrition, lifestyle, and exercise from both a scientific and lived perspective. Rachel's extensive athletic background includes being a coxswain for Northeastern's Division I men's varsity rowing team to now a top spin instructor at Flywheel Sports. Get ready for this though. Rachel fits in teaching double spin class sessions numerous times a week on top of working at the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine at the renowned Jocelyn Diabetes Center in Boston, Massachusetts as a research fellow devoted to the intersection between food and movement in America. Rachel not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. If you listen to my conversation with Rachel and it moves you in any way, I want to know. So please consider leaving a review of the Running on Ohm podcast on iTunes. It will help me better this podcast for all of you and also help increase its visibility in the iTunes interface. Reach out and let me know you tuned in and what you thought about Rachel's story. Let's dive deep in today's conversation with Rachel Pajednik. So was crew for you your entry into health and wellness? Like, were you an athlete growing up? Uh, yeah. So all through high school, I participated in a variety of different sports, but like girly stuff. So I was a cheerleader and um, played soccer and, you know, sort of different. And then I got to college and I started out my first year in college. I started at UMass Amherst and... I had spent the summer prior to going there. I was an intern at the state house here in the city. And I would go down to the river at lunch and just watch the boats. And I was like, oh, that's a really cool sport. It seems like something I could really get into. You know, it looks so beautiful. And you don't realize until you're in the boat how aggressive and, you know, muscular and, you know, just so intense it really is just because it looks so gorgeous. And you're like, you know, standing on the bridges looking over. And so I was like, oh, I really want to do that sport. And I got to college and uh, Jim Dietz was the coach there, which is funny because he's a Northeastern alum. And I walked into his office. He's the women's coach. And I said, I want to row. And he said, uh, you'll be a coxswain. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like I, I'm strong. Like I'm, I'm athletic. I can do this. I, you know, I've run for a long time. I've... And he's like, you're just not big enough. Like you can't you won't be able to match up with the other girls, so you're going to have to be a coxswain. And by the way, we're a Division One team, so we've already recruited four coxswains. So you'll be a walk-on, and you know you might get into boat this year, you might not. And I was like, oh, that's a 
giant bummer. Um, so I started tooling around campus and totally randomly ran into the men's club office at UMass Amherst. And they were like doing a recruiting event and they pulled me aside and they said, are you interested in rowing? And I said, yeah, I really am thinking like, oh yeah, I can row. They're like, we really need coxswains for the men's team. And I was like, ah. So um, I ended up becoming a coxswain for the men's team because I could get in a boat right away because they didn't have enough um, coxswains. And so I spent a year there coxing and then transferred to Northeastern because it was uh, the school, the um, academic program was much better suited to what I was looking for. I had sort of decided what I wanted to focus on by then. They had a really great exercise science program. And the rowing team ended up being really highly competitive. And so I transferred and started coxing for the men there and uh the rest is sort of history so that's so incredible to me that you came into college with an idea of being like okay I'm gonna do this I'm gonna be on the crew team I'm gonna make it happen for myself and then the path was completely unexpected unexpected yeah and you showed up for it and you obviously had a talent and worked super hard at it so for listeners who have no clue what it means to be a coxswain can you explain a little bit like how did you even train or learn how to do that because it's an art it's straight up on the job training yeah so i think you have to have a certain inherent personality you know you need to be outgoing and you need to be a little fearless because the boats are going really really fast and so you have to make split second decisions at you know any moment you know if you've ever watched the head of the charles and you've seen two or three boats go under a bridge arch at the same time they either crash into each other because there's you know miscommunication or the steering is wrong or it's you know the most perfectly executed precision turn you've ever seen and you have to be able to do that especially at the highest levels and so you need a level of confidence as a young woman that was five feet one inches tall being surrounded by all of these really intense six foot four men that are you know full of testosterone and competitiveness and you know you have to be able to stand in front of that group of people and lead and it was a it was one of the most personally um It taught me the most, being able to do that taught me the most about how to be a professional later on in life. I can stand in front of a room and be confident in what I've prepared. I can look at a group of people that maybe are, you know, now I'm in academia, but I can look at a group of people that have been doing something for a significant amount of time and be confident in adding my voice to the conversation and I'm not sure that I would have developed those skills without that experience. That's so beautiful <laughs> that you were able to learn and grow from that. It sounds like in such deep levels. And I imagine there was also some challenge. Speak to me a little bit about the gender dynamics of being this five foot one girl and having these huge guys that you were really in command of. What was that like? You'd be surprised at how accepted and acceptable it all is so you would think that there would be pushback because I was a female and actually the dynamic is more 
there's more tension between coxswains in general and rowers. You know, there's always this joke. So if you've ever seen a boat with uh, two or four rowers in it, they it may or may not have a coxswain. And w- what happens is if it doesn't have a coxswain, the stroke of the boat will have um, a steering device underneath the foot of one of his um, his shoes. And the joke is always... I, my foot can do what you do in a boat. And it's not true. You know, you need a coxswain in, in an aid in particular. But the dynamic is, is much more um, about... The dynamic is much more about trust than it is about gender or um, even position necessarily, is that if you, if you can develop a level of trust between the rowers and the coxswain or the men and the young woman, amazing things can happen. And I think that that's another really wonderful lesson that you can learn from, and it's not just rowing, but athletics in general, is that if you can develop a trust among people, then you can always move forward together. Whereas if there's tension or questions, you know, you can have incredibly talented people and incredibly talented coaches and you put them together and it doesn't work because there's not a level of cohesion exactly exactly and synergy mm-hmm. and it, it's again it doesn't just play into athletics it plays into all aspects of life professional life family social dynamics i think if you if you don't have that level of trust and um, camaraderie and cohesion, the forward momentum and progression, it doesn't, it doesn't flourish. Yeah, I completely am with you on that from my experience as both a coach and an athlete myself, that trust, that cohesion, I think it only allows us collectively and then individually to really reach our highest potential exactly and that's one of the beauties about working together is that like we can't become our best selves without one another yeah you know it's funny you look at a a sport like running right and oftentimes it's you're off on your own and you're really you know in your own space and you can really push yourself and you know it's a I found it's a it's a word from somebody that you have a relationship with or a group that you do a training run with where you you know you might not have your best run or your best moment in that moment but you can gather those moments together and really create uh, a, a a moment of amazing forward movement and it can be it doesn't have to be you know your best time or it doesn't have to be your you know you've won the race but really you've found a moment that just everything you know in rowing and in many other sports there's that moment where you it's you know counted all the time where you you don't feel like you're working so hard you know you're in that moment of flow and you're in that moment of you might be killing yourself physically, but you just don't feel it, you know? And it's it's all of those moments that you've created along the way by yourself with the help of other people that have that bring you to that highest peak, I yes. think. Would you say that ethos is also at the foundation of the work you do as a spin instructor? Yeah, so 
It's funny because professionally I straddle the academic world of exercise and nutrition now and the health and fitness world. So as an academic, I, you know, I have a PhD and I work at a you know, high level research center. And then I teach spinning classes and people are always like, what is that? Why do you do both of those things? I'm like, because that's real life, you know? And so, yeah, taking those moments so I've been teaching spinning for a really long time and I started teaching at this really wonderful studio in the South End called Recycle and it was the first studio in Boston and it was I, I want to say 12 15 bikes in the basement. I mean it was really well done. It was a you know nicely uh nicely done basement. It was beautiful. But you know you get down there and there are 12 bikes in a room and you're in front of them and it's dark and the music is loud and you have this feeling of, you know, I'm on my bike by myself. I'm doing, you know, I'm making the ch- changes in resistance and I'm pedaling at my own pace, but you're being completely pushed and completely motivated by everything that's going on around you. So it's the instructor, it's the, you know, the guy sweating on you next to you in the next bike. And now that I've moved on to a, you know, a, a bigger studio, we've got 50 bikes in the room now. And so I don't have that necessarily personal connection moment to moment with the person in the back of the room, but you can feel that energy, Collective right? Collective tribe. Yes. Yeah. It's a total tribe. Exactly. So people come into that room and they could have had the best day they've ever had in their life and they just want to celebrate, you know, they're just so excited And then right next to that same person, there's somebody that's just had possibly the worst day they've ever had in their life. And they just need the energy and the support. And yeah, so that, and they trust that when they come in there, that there's going to be this element of intensity and, and support. And, and it sounds so silly because it's just a spinning class, but Anybody that's ever experienced that knows that you need that moment in your life. And, you know, if you want to go back to um, just athletics as, as a whole and just feeling much of this is tied back to movement in general, right? Where you're just by moving your body and by sweating and by, you know, exercising your muscles you create this mental place that can either be you know depending on on what your day is it can be your haven it could be your celebration it can be your moment of solitude it could be the moment that you're with a group of other people and I love that about exercise and about physical activity and I think that's why professionally I do both so I am in that sweaty dark studio with the music blaring and then at the other part of my day I'm looking at what exactly scientifically is going on in your body during those times so it's a really nice balance yeah I mean you're walking the walk and you're talking the talk it's it's really comprehensive speak to me a little bit more about the work you do and your your collaboration with the Institute for Lifestyle Medicine. So I got my PhD from Tufts Friedman School, which is a one of the 
nutrition schools in the country. And while I was there, I worked in this lab called the NAPS lab, which is nutrition, exercise, physiology, and sarcopenia. And they did a lot of work, do a lot of work on aging and how uh, nutrition and exercise can affect healthy aging. And so the study physician, uh, his name is Dr. Eddie Phillips, and I shared an office. We were sort of, you know, I was the doctoral student and he was the study physician. So we got, you know, the, the office sort of on the other side of the hallway and we were kind of put to, you know, do our work and needed, you know, as we were needed, we were drawn out of our tiny office. And so we got to talk a lot. And so he, as it turned out, had started the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine at the Spalding Rehabilitation Center, also in Boston, really interested. He's a um, physical medicine and rehabilitation doc. And so he's really interested in, you know, rehab for athletic injuries or brain injury, or, you know, if you have a car accident, how do you bring your body back? And he got really excited about So he comes from the medical MD world. And so he got really excited or dismayed, I'll use, because many physicians now are not trained in nutrition and exercise. And I'm seeing the look on your face right now. And it's exactly the look that people get. And they're like, no, you're, you know, I mean, in medical school, it's like a day that covers nutrition. Yeah, it's a day that covers nutrition, if that. And so... You know, so he started the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine to address that specific gap. Doctors need to be trained on the benefits of physical activity. They need to understand the guidelines. At the very least, they need to know how to talk to their patients about exercise. Um, and then nutrition came after that. So he's a PM&R guy. So exercise was his, his primary avenue. And then nutrition, because... Hello, nutrition is medicine, as we know. Um, and then, so now it's, it's sort of expanded into stress reduction and sleep and mindfulness. And so what we like to say is that we talk to physicians about nutrition, exercise, behavior change. So how to institute these behavior changes in their patient population and then self-care. So you know, rather than just standing or sitting across from your physician, your patient and wagging your finger at them and saying, you need to exercise more, you need to eat better. The model is that they understand nutrition, they understand exercise, they can talk to their patients about it. And the reason that they can do that is because they're doing it themselves. And so they're putting themselves on a journey of, and it's not, it's not often pretty because MDs are, they work 60, 80 more hours per week. Um, They're incredibly stressed. They have a lot of pressure on them. And instituting these behaviors in their own life can be a real challenge. So they can really relate to their patients on, I understand you don't have enough time to do this. Here's what I do to help. Or, you know, I'm I'm on this path with you. So that's the, the majority of what we do at the Institute, that's the advocacy component that we do. That's why it was founded. And then uh, the Institute has since moved from Spalding to 
the Jocelyn Diabetes Center, which is where I joined them. So Eddie had this great idea, Dr. Phillips had this great idea to start this institute. And then Jocelyn Diabetes Center, Jocelyn Diabetes Center said, yeah, this is a great idea and this would fit really, really well with our patient population. So they moved, he moved a year ago over to, almost two years ago over to the Jocelyn, which is when I joined the team as a postdoc. And so I've been doing the advocacy of this um, physician intervention. And then I've also been, because I'm a researcher, I've also been exploring a couple of other research projects on my own. So I've got a study looking at, um, and this is completely coincidental, but a study looking at high-intensity interval training on indoor spinning bikes with patients with type 2 diabetes, completely uh, random that that came onto my um, my plate, but it's been a really exciting project to look at. And then um, we're doing this really wonderful project partnering with Reebok um, to evaluate their box program, which is a before-school physical activity program for kids. So they get dropped off about an hour early. Um, they run around like little crazy kids, which is exactly what they should do before um, they go into school. And then, you know, through a, that project was uh, started by Reebok and a, a really wonderful woman named Kathleen Tully based on John Rady's Spark. And to your readers, if they haven't read this book, I would highly recommend it. It's a really wonderful um, a really wonderful scientific based, but incredibly entertaining book on how physical activity is really important for brain health. So that's what we're looking at there is if you run the kids around silly before they go into school, do they not only physically do better, you know, we're looking at BMI and some other, um, outcomes, which are not great proxies for health, but we're also looking at, um, academics and, uh, cognitive performance and resilience and um, a bunch of other, uh, maybe we're looking at bullying and um, other behaviors based on a physical activity intervention. And then lastly, the last research project that I'm working on that this is just starting to get going and I'm really excited and you'll actually like this, is we're looking at an almost vegan diet. And I say almost because there's a little bit of wiggle room for it. Um, as a treatment modality for type 2 diabetes. So the hypothesis is that if you adopt a very strict and challenging, um, so there's a lot of support built into this study, um, vegetarian or vegan diet that you can, um, we think the hypothesis is that you can reverse your type 2 diabetes. So that's ongoing. It's just getting started. But those are the three projects that I'm working on in addition to the physician training advocacy. That's so it's a tremendous. Lot. Yeah. That's tremendous. Yeah. So on a day-to-day basis, how do you balance those those different projects, research projects, as well as the advocacy? Like, are you in the lab? Are you meeting with patients? Are you meeting with doctors a lot? Like, what does your life look like? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's... um. Every day is different, and if you were to look at my Google Calendar, you would probably be slightly appalled, but it's great work, you know? So you, I start early, I teach my classes early in the morning, um, and then I go in, and it's, research is a lot of making connections and collaborating and writing grants and 
writing papers and protocols. So it's a lot of time at a computer, which is somewhat unfortunate. Um, but again, I try to practice what I preach and I get up every hour and I take a lap around and I, you know, we're trying to get standing desks in the office so that we can all stand up while we're working. Um, and then, yeah, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of conference calls. It's a lot of, uh, Google Hangout calls, which is it, it's actually been a really wonderful addition because you can actually s- interact with and see somebody's face as you're, you know, everybody's so enthusiastic about um, behavior change and nutrition and exercise. And so it's really great to collaborate with people that way. Um, and then at the end of the day, I, I try really hard to be done by 6, 6.30 and go home and cook dinner and have a glass of wine with my husband. If you know me, you know that I like my red wine. Um, The evidence is there, I'm sticking to it. Uh, And try really hard to spend time with him and with our dogs and really try to unwind at the end of the day. So I, I pack my day as much as I possibly can, but I also try to keep it tight so that I can have time on either end early in the morning and then in the evening to live life. Yeah, and it sounds like it's a deeply fulfilling life that you're really passionate and you're thriving in. I I want to return back to the idea of behavioral changes, mm-hmm. both in the doctors you're working with and in the patients they're seeing. And I think I've heard from so many people who either want to start yoga or running or a cleaner way of eating. People are like, I don't have time. I don't have time to make my food. It's a lot about rhetoric about time. How do you respond to that? And what kind of research have you shown actually helps people make behavioral changes? Yeah, that's a great question because it is, it is a lot about time. And I, I'm not, I don't think it's just rhetoric. I think people really are packed. Like I think about it, my husband and I don't have kids, but if we did, that would be hours of the day. And I, I commend people for having two careers or, you know, even if there's a stay-at-home parent, the element of adding children into the whole dynamic would just be enormous. Tremendous. Yeah, enormous. And I think the the message that is often sent out through popular media, through even you know some of the research that we put out is that you have to change everything right now in order to be healthy. You have to eat nothing but kale salads and smoothies and you have to exercise 60 minutes a day and you have to, you know, do your meditation practice and you have to, everything all the time has to be done. Yeah. And I think that that's not sustainable. it's a myth. Yeah, it's a myth. And it's not only it's 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 not only unsustainable but it's not necessary so there's this great research that's been coming out lately is that if you um so one of the great studies that came out recently was how much exercise do you actually need and i'm paraphrasing i don't remember exactly what the name of the study was but you know the guidelines for physical activity you know all evidence-based they look at all of these studies and they say how much exercise do you really need and they come up with the idea that 150 minutes is the optimal amount of exercise that you need per week so you break that down and it's about a half an hour per day right five days a week about a half an hour you can break it down that way 
you could do it, you know, in two bouts, whatever. And people are still like, where am I going to get a half an hour? And then if you go back into the studies, it's more like, actually, if you get 10 minutes a day of moving around and walking counts, standing up from your desk counts, that can lead to tremendous health benefits later on. And I do this exercise with a lot of my um, mostly physicians that I work with. I don't work with patients very often. And I have this app um, that I, I use with them. And it's, it sends you a reminder once an hour to do one minute of activity, right? And, you know, it's something that you can you can set it for three different settings and you can either get up and like stretch your whole body or you can say sitting at your desk and move your arms and legs around or if you're sitting in a meeting and you can't you literally can't move it will give you you know small exercises that you can do under the table you know like rotating your ankles or stretching out your wrists and they all look at me and they're like does that count I'm like if the alternative is just sitting there yeah it counts like it all counts and so to answer your question, I think even if it's just one minute at a time, starting that mindset and starting that change can, number one, be very beneficial to your health, but number two, can also be the gateway to perhaps other things. So maybe one minute leads to two and two minutes leads to 10. Or or maybe it doesn't. Maybe a minute you know, every hour is what you can do. And if you count it up and you're at work, let's say only eight hours you know, a, a, a day, and you get eight minutes per day times five, you've gotten 40 minutes now of exercise that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And so it all counts and it all adds up. And I think that's the element that's really missing is it, it doesn't have to be about getting to a spinning class. Although, or a yoga class. Or a yoga <laughs> class, right. Or going for a run. It can be, and that's wonderful, and that works for many people. But if it doesn't work for you, there are alternatives that can lead to incredible health benefits. And I, I fear, actually, that by, you know, I, I, I'm coming from the, the fitness industry, and I actually just got appointed to the American Council on Exercise um, Industry Advisory Panel, and this is one of the... Um, one of the the tenets that I'd like to bring is I fear that by insisting that exercise be a certain thing, you know, it has to be a run or it has to be a spinning class or it has to be, um, you know, one of the traditional exercises that we think of, a yoga class, that we're not touching the part of the population that really needs it most it's almost like we're preaching to the choir you know people that are interested in running are going to figure out a way to get running into their life or they're going to get inspired by somebody that's a runner but only and this is a tragic fact but only 30 percent of the population in the united states is meeting those guidelines so that means that 70 percent of the population isn't getting mostly any physical activity during their day for me that's so stressful so if we can get that one minute per hour 40 minutes per week in through creative ways let's do it let's do it and i think when you speak about about seeing beyond the more known exercise forms and seeing movement as much more comprehensive and creative 
for me, I feel like the simplest movement that is accessible, hopefully, to everyone is walking. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, not everyone can walk, but what if it means just dr- driving your kids to school, but parking five minutes from the school and getting it in a 10-minute walk? Yeah, and it's great because actually, so... Uh, we're in a really wonderful forward-thinking time in exercise and nutrition research where finally collaborators are coming together and they're saying, how can we make the healthy choice the easy choice, right? So it's something like that. You know, I always tell this story. You know, I started out when I was in college working at um, gyms, right, at a health club. So I was a personal trainer. And it was hysterical to me. You know, you've got this gigantic parking lot, right? And you're at the gym, and people drive to the gym, and what do they do? They park in the spot that's the closest to the door, right? So what if we made the parking lot across the street, and it took five minutes to get to the door, right? Would less people come? I don't know. But, you know, just thinking creatively about how to make the healthy choice the easy or maybe even the only choice, right? So how does that relate to food though? Yeah, so this is a good nice transition actually. So there's a lot of discussion around food. What's the right food? What's the healthiest food? What's the right diet? What's the healthiest diet? What's the optimal diet? And if you look at, so so for exercise, my message is we got to get it in wherever we can. For nutrition, my message is what are the common themes among all of these diets and all of these regimens of food intake that we can take rather than saying this is the right way or this is the right way or this is the right way. Say, well, all of these diets seem to be to have you know positive effect so when you look at all of the research lately you can show positive effect from a low carb diet a low fat diet a high protein diet a high now with the new one is a high fat diet right and so you can see i know in their study after study they show all these minute molecular benefits right but if you look at the commonalities between these diets, the ones that work, you can see that fruits and vegetables, oftentimes whole grains, and other plant-based products are at the root, right? So I give this talk, I'm actually giving it on Friday at our conference here in Boston. And you know, I go through the different diets and you know, what's a high-carb diet, what's a low-carb diet, what's a high-fat diet? And then I say, you know what, let's, let's just look at these diets. And in their truest form, what are these diets trying to be, right? So if, if you were in the most optimal low-carb diet, what would that look like? And so I show four or five pictures in a row. And, you know, the low-carb diet is a beautiful kale salad with, you know, um, some tuna on top and, you know, sprinkled with some almonds and, you know. And then you go to the low-fat diet, and it's this gorgeous kale salad with, you know, an egg on top and maybe some extra tomatoes. And the low-fat one, because it's not low-carb, maybe there's a side of bread, you know. Then you look at the high-protein diet, and it's this beautiful kale salad with maybe, you know, some chicken or some steak on top. And there's probably quinoa on it because high-protein, and you know. And so you, you look at these pictures, and you look at them side by side, and you say, what is, you know, 
there's something going on here. It's the common denominator. Exactly. And so you look at it and you're like, okay, well, clearly there's a lot of fruits and vegetables, some whole grains, and some nuts and seeds. And, you know, the sort of sprinkling in of other elements, be it, you know, meat or cheese or um, bread or, you know, pasta in some senses, those are just details, you know, like the commonalities and why so many of these diets work is because they've got these central threads, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds. And so back to your original question is how do we get people, how does that, um, how does that the right choice be the easy choice choice for people is providing these important central elements in a way that's accessible, affordable, and available, right? So, and it's going to be different for every community. So I grew up in rural Massachusetts, and in the town that I grew up in, a little town called Barrie, there were probably more cows than people. It was, you know, an incredible farmscape, and yet the nearest grocery store was probably 45 minutes drive. You know, there was a tiny market in town and nothing was locally sourced, which is just amazing to me, right? So you could go to the farms and each farm had like a farm stand and you could stop by and they would be on the, you know, street sign and you could pick them up. But if you wanted to go to the grocery store, it was 45 minutes away. And then you look at urban food deserts, right? And, you know, you get pockets of communities blocks and blocks and blocks where the only thing that's available is a 7-eleven or you know a small convenience store so we've got to figure out and there's a lot of really wonderful movement on this front figuring out how to get the fruits the vegetables the whole grains the nuts and seeds to the masses in their own communities and in their own way so i don't necessarily have an answer but I'm encouraged because a lot of people are working on this problem. It's a very well-known problem, and there are a lot of really good people that are are trying very hard to make it better. Who are those good people that you have been inspired by? So there's several. Um, at a very local level, there's this guy that I love, and if you ever get a chance to see him speak, his name is Mark Fenton. He is a local, he's an um, architect and an engineer, and he has done a lot of work. He actually had a show on PBS for a while. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but something about walking in the city. And he now does work for the CDC and for uh, a lot of other people in creating communities, the physical environment of communities that encourages walking. And simple things like, where do you put the planters on the sidewalk to encourage people to move around or, you know, creating bike lanes or um, changing the sidewalk structure so that it encourages people to be looking at traffic when they're, tra- you know, when they're crossing the street so that nobody gets hit by a car. You know, these kind of things that people are really starting to think about in order to encourage healthy behaviors. And then when you think about it um, from a nutrition front, so I come from Tufts, and so this is, you know, all of my my loves and my mentors are there. But, you know, there are so many of those researchers that are trying so hard. Um, Chris Economos is one that comes to mind. She works with this program called Shape Up Somerville. 
and they've encouraged almost the entire city to change, so this is Somerville, Massachusetts, right next to Boston, to change the food environment in the schools, to change the um, the walkability around the schools, to talk to the physicians about how to encourage healthy behaviors, not only with the kids, but with their parents and with the teachers in the school. And so they're creating this community effect and this sort of integrated system of the healthy choice is the easy choice and in some cases the only choice. Um, And you know, I know politically people sometimes have a hard time with that. You know, I appreciate that element of it is that we come from a, a system of personal choice and this is an argument that comes up a lot when we're talking about city planning and nutrition planning and exercise planning. And I value that. I'll, you know, we come from a society that it's important that we're able to make choices. I think, unfortunately, up until this point, the healthy choice hasn't even been an option. And so if we can introduce that as a start, as one of the choices, and then eventually as people come to realize that, oh, this is a great way to go, hopefully then it becomes the only choice or the, the predominant choice. And you're really focusing on the Boston community and your research, I imagine, is impacting the international sphere. But what cities you feel like are doing it right in the world? Oh, that's a great question. So I actually think Boston is doing an amazing job. Um, you know, the, you can think of some of the more... Um, progressive hubs. Portland, Oregon is doing a really nice job. Um, Seattle is doing a really nice job. Um, There's a lot of cities in Wisconsin um, that are doing a really nice job of really figuring out how to integrate with their communities. Chicago. So it's a lot of um, bigger cities And I think part of that is because there's a loud enough voice, right? So there's enough people, there's a critical mass of people that can raise their voice. But if you look at, um, Dr. Miriam Nelson is one of the the, um, researchers that I worked with. She does this program called Strong Women. And she purposefully goes into smaller communities. And her angle is that she tries to get the women of the community to come together and exercise together and empower one another to keep coming back and to encourage one another, you know, again, building on all of those things that we talked about early on, building the trust, building the, um, the social community. Um, and it works. It works in these smaller communities. They don't get as much press. They don't get as much recognition, but this can work anywhere. Yeah, it can. And what's cool is we met through the November project yeah. in Boston. And <laughs> Funny. that yeah. Yeah, I mean, look at how that has grown. Yeah. Well, I think when you and I met at November project, there were about fifteen people going and now it's many cities, countries, thousands of people. And I think you know, that's that's the type of trust and community and social um, pressure is not the right word I want to use, but camaraderie that builds a community to 
make the right choice. It's a social revolution. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And in your own life, you're doing so much studying of nutrition, of exercise science. How have you determined what's right for your body and what diet you want to follow? Because you're so steeped in the literature of it. I imagine that could almost be overwhelming to have so much knowledge. Yeah, it actually often can be. And it, you know, it's funny is that, you know, when you look at a lot of experts and this sort of shtick that they bring forward, it's like they pick one angle or another, right? And oftentimes it's about selling a book or it's about, you know, espousing a certain diet or, you know, exercise regimen. And oftentimes it's because, in my opinion, they latch on to a certain element of the research. So you can find, if you look out there, you can find a study to support just about any hypothesis, right? So if you want to promote a high-fat diet, there are studies to show you that that is a good thing. And so what I try to do is take all the research that I know about in aggregate and really try to understand what the consensus is among those studies. So there's always going to be a study that says something completely wacky, right? And those are the ones that always get press. And those are the ones that are really confusing people. So, you know, when you look at a study that says something like, on top, uh, you know, if you recall a few months ago, there was a study that got a lot of press. It ended up on the front of Time magazine that butter is now good for you, right? Yes, it's all over the yeah. place. And everybody thinks that bacon is the right thing now. And so, you know, it, it was one study, and there are a lot of scientists. So I, my appointment is through the Harvard Medical School, and so there are a lot of scientists, Walt Willett is leading the charge over there, that say that the data in that study was largely misinterpreted and hugely flawed. And I'm not going to take a, a, a stance on that right now, but I will say that if you look at all of the studies on the whole, by and large, you won't come to that conclusion that butter is now you know, completely okay for you to lather on anything. Is butter okay in moderation? Yeah. You know, can you put it on bread every now and again, make a grilled cheese with it? Sure. I wouldn't put it on everything because we've done that. And this is what I I sort of worry about with all of these, I call them pendulum swings in all of this diet. So we started out long ago, middle of the century, uh, middle of the 20th century, where we were looking at all this data from Framingham, which is a town just outside of Boston. And sort of supposed to be any man's town. And the reason that they started looking at it is because heart disease was going through the roof after World War II, and we wanted to figure out why. And they came to the conclusion through a variety of different studies that fat was dietary fat was playing a large role. Okay, fast forward 20 years, we've substituted the fat for highly processed carbohydrates, and now we are on the anti-carb wagon, right? And so we flip-flopped and said, well, we tried the low-fat thing. That didn't work. So now we're going to take low-carb, right? And so we get this high-protein diet. 
And every time, every iteration, it starts out and everybody's got the best intentions, but if you take something out of the diet, you have to replace it with something else. And so, you know, you, you can see this in the research is that, you know, the, the outcomes of, well, low-fat diet works really well if it's, you know, go back to the pictures, if it's, you know, a kale salad with, uh, you know, an egg on top and, you know, a, a, a piece of bread. It doesn't work really well if it's a 500-calorie bran muffin that, you know, yes, it might be um, low-fat, but... You know, it's still a 500-calorie processed bran muffin. So you have to come back to the idea that there are a a consensus among the literature as to what the, and I'm going to come back to this again, is that what what the central themes are in all these diets. And so that's where I put myself. So I don't eat meat. not that I don't think that people shouldn't eat meat. I just choose not to. I do eat fish. I eat eggs and dairy. But most of the food that I eat is fruits and vegetables, nuts, seeds, whole grains. Because that's the central tenet. You're plant-based. Plant-based. Exactly. Exactly. Highly plant-based. And if I was to advocate for a diet, it would be a plant-based diet. I think you can sprinkle in cheese and you can sprinkle in eggs and maybe even a dabble of meat here and there. And there's nutritional reasons for that. So, you know, everybody comes back to the, oh, well, if you're on a plant-based diet, how are you going to get your protein? Or your B12 or... Yeah, exactly. And so I I am of the mind that I think that you should get everything that your body needs from diet. I don't think that you should take supplements unless you really need to. Although I did all of my um, PhD research on vitamin D. And if you can't get vitamin D from your diet in the winter, in the north, I think that you should probably take a D supplement. But other than that, I think you should be able to get everything that you need from your diet. And so for something like B12, I think that you should be able to get that from your diet. If you choose not to eat meat or not to eat dairy products, animal products, more power to you. If you're sticking with the central tenets and you need to take a B12 supplement, do it. You know, that's not going to change the dynamic in your body b12 is b12 is b12 and if you choose not to eat meat go for it you know if the central tenets of fruits and vegetables whole grains seeds and nuts are there you're doing you're doing the right thing what do you think about the protein myth there's a lot of talk about protein of grains and veggies and fruits not actually giving you protein what's your take on that so there is protein amino acids in everything that's what pretty much everything is made up of is protein and so i one of my um one of my heroes is this guy his name is dr campbell yes t colin campbell he's unreal he wrote the china study uh, which a scientist will argue has a lot of flaws, which is fine. Um, but he actually started doing his research and he has like great guilt over it, doing a lot of his research with the dairy and the meat industry, sort of promoting this idea that you need meat and dairy in order to get protein. And it's a, it's a theory that has stood the test of time. So if anybody has ever tried to 
explain to their meat eating family why they're not eating meat. Yes. The very first question is how are you going to get your protein? And the good thing is, is that through, so my degree is in nutritional biochemistry. I've actually been able to show, or my, you know, my fellow colleagues have been able to show that there is significant amount of protein in legumes, in certain whole grains, in peas. So pea is the new protein, right? So it's in, amino acids are in everything. You want to make sure that you're getting all of them. But if you eat a variety of foods during the day, you're getting all of them. Um, so it's even, you know, it used to be that if you're a vegetarian, you have to balance and like match your foods and, you know, you need to make sure that you're getting all of your essential amino acids. It's a, you know, it's, you don't really need to do that. You can eat a a wide variety of plant-based foods and your protein intake is going to be completely fine. In fact, you've done a lot of really wonderful, um, interviews with athletes that have been able to prove that they're able to compete at the highest level on a vegetarian or vegan diet and protein doesn't seem to be an inhibitor for them right exactly exactly yeah it's tremendous Mm -hmm. i think it's very much of the protein myth is Mm -hmm. real yeah the protein myth is real and it's a falsehood (laughs) yes yes so uh back to t colin campbell is that he's now spending his life uh trying to correct the protein myth to debunk um, yeah. yeah to debunk it so he goes around we actually got to spend a day together a couple of weeks ago which was really inspiring uh he's promoting his son's new movie called plant pure nation which i highly recommend seeing um but just really trying to promote to people and he 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 is uh very much promoting a, a vegan diet which i don't necessarily think is as i said um, you know, there's a lot of variations on a theme that you can you can take depending on your lifestyle and where you are in your life. But um, but he's doing a really wonderful job of trying to, to correct the the path that he put a lot of us on early on in life. Yeah, he's a tremendous being. Mm-hmm. He's really a father in the work that you're doing. It's yeah, it's really exciting to be able to spend time with him. What what's ahead for you? What are you excited about? It sounds like you have some incredible research projects going on. But what's exciting you? Yeah, it's so... Being in the world of academia is a constant roller coaster ride because you have to balance the ideas that you're passionate about with the funding that's available to investigate them. And so oftentimes you're led down a path that is dictated by the money that you can secure to study it. So for me, my entire career right now, and I hope that that can sort of change, but my entire career right now is based upon the grant money that I can procure to keep my position. And so I'm really excited about, for the last last 10 years or so, the grant landscape in the United States for scientists has been um, declining and scary and somewhat defeating uh, for young scientists. The good thing is, is it's starting to pick up. And there are a lot of, in the nutrition world and in the physical activity world, there's a lot of recognition finally through advocates like my PI, Eddie Phillips, 
you know, just constantly hammering the message home that these are critical components to health. And so I'm optimistic that there will be opportunity to continue on in this realm because I am so passionate about it. And it's funny, you know, you wouldn't think that you'd have to prove over and over and over again that exercise and balanced nutrition is important to health. But unless the research says it, then it doesn't exist. So I'm excited that the research is starting to expand. I'm excited to stay on with the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine for some time. I'm hoping um, to continue this work. And I have uh, personal visions that maybe I'd like to start writing a bit more for popular media I've written you know I've got my little blog that I don't really pay enough attention to and then I've um, written for the Huffington Post a few times but I'm really hoping to keep pushing this message forward um, that moderation is sexy you know that that middle that these central themes are can be exciting it can be just as exciting as the fringe and the flash in the pan um, and I'm hoping that through enthusiasm and research and persistence to keep moving that agenda forward. The world is really lucky to have you. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you so much. Seriously, because I feel like you are really pioneering that middle path. Yeah, I that think... moderation and being able to see it as not in the extremes, but you're you're trying to pioneer a moderation that can be accessible to all people. And that's exactly all, it. All classes, all genders, all socioeconomic classes. It's so cool. That's exactly it. Is I feel like we have gone and and we needed to come down this path in order to make it an important issue, but we need to now start to demonstrate that everybody can and should have access to this information to these opportunities and that it doesn't have to be an extreme and it doesn't you know back to your very early question of what you know what behavior change how do we put these behavior changes into place it doesn't have to be extreme and it doesn't have to be uh you know diets or elimination diets or ultra marathons or you know it can be small things and that through these small things we can start to really push the envelope and and move the needle on health for everyone and and i i'm really excited about that because i think that's that's the next really important thing to health to happiness, to a collective sort of social fabric is really creating an environment where people have the opportunity and have the ability to pursue a healthful life. I'm right here with you. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing your story, your insight. It was an honor. Oh, thank you so much. I feel very grateful to be included in your amazing collection of inspiring practitioners, professionals, humans. So excited. Thank you so much. 
I hope you found Rachel's extensive scientific and lived perspective on changing the nutritional and lifestyle landscape of America as inspiring as I did. Thank you all for tuning into Running on Ohm and supporting the show. Your feedback means the world to me, and I really want to know it. So please consider leaving a review of the podcast on iTunes. It will help me better this podcast for all of you, and also help increase its visibility in the iTunes interface. Share this conversation with someone who you think would dig Running on Ohm. Word of mouth is really powerful, and I believe these conversations can plant seeds of inspiration in those around you. This is your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a rue-filled day.